Well, this morning we are back in our series in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, before we study this passage, let's ask God's help to understand it. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come to you and ask that you would speak to us through your word. This week we have all heard from maybe hundreds of different voices telling us who we are or what we should be like. But Lord, today we are gathered here to hear from one voice, the only voice that matters, the voice of the one who made us. And Lord, we trust that it is by your spirit that you can use a sinful and weak man to proclaim true things about you. And so I ask, would you help me be clear with the gospel and stay true to what your word says? May I add nothing to it or take anything from it. And may we all leave here in awe of Jesus and his mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's a pity the rules don't allow for mercy. These are the words of the infamous villain, Inspector Javert, in the 1998 classic film adaptation of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, which is the best version. Uh, if you're familiar with the play or the film, you know that for Inspector Javert, there was nothing more precious to him than the law. He lived to uphold the law. He lived his life in subjection to the law. And for him, there was no room for mercy in the law. If you stole bread because you were starving, you deserved the punishment the law required down to the letter. Didn't matter if you had paid back your debt to society a hundredfold by feeding orphans and widows for years on end. The law would never be satisfied until its punishment was fulfilled. And nothing seemed to satisfy his thirst to uphold the law until one day his life was mercifully spared by a man named Jean Valjean the same bread thief that he had been hunting for years. Quickly, the foundations of his life built on the law began to crumble beneath him. And instead of receiving this mercy and allowing it to transform his understanding of the law and its function in society, he tragically ends his life for breaking the very rules that he lived to serve. He lived by the law and he died by the law. And in our passage, we come across another set of infamous rule followers called the Pharisees. And these were not officials of the state like Javert, but rather religious rule followers who devoted their lives to obeying the law of God down to the letter. Yet, as we'll see in our text, when they are confronted by the authority and the mercy of Jesus on the Sabbath, which was their most sacred law keeping day, it threatened their understanding of the law and therefore threatened their very foundation of their righteousness and their reputation, turning their hearts towards murder rather than mercy. If you've been with us since we've worked through Luke's gospel, we know that Jesus is not afraid of confrontation. He's not afraid to take aim at the sacred pillars of the religious order that do not conform to the new order or the new kingdom that he is ushering in. And this morning, we too will be confronted by Jesus in this text. 
And we'll have to decide whether we are willing to be transformed by the law of Christ or hold fast to the law of our own making. And my hope as we study these two Sabbath stories that you will marvel at the authority of Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, and that you will be transformed by his mercy, finding true rest in his gospel of mercy and grace. Our passage is divided clearly into two Sabbath stories uh, that feature two unique confrontations that Jesus had and his disciples had with the Pharisees. Uh, the first one we'll look at is a story of Sabbath eating in verses 1 to 5. And second, we'll look at a story of Sabbath healing in verses 6 through 11. And then finally, we'll conclude with three points of application as we look at the story of Sabbath resting. Let's begin in verse 1 and look at a story of Sabbath eating. Verse 1, on a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? So Luke begins his story uh, by setting the scene for us, telling us that this confrontation happens on the Sabbath day. And that may not mean much to many of us. Uh, but it's essential to the story that we feel the full weight of what the Sabbath day meant for the Jews of Jesus' day. We first read about uh, the Sabbath-keeping rules for the people of Israel in the book of Exodus, back at the beginning of the Old Testament. After God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, he gave them instructions on how to experience life under uh, the blessing of God under his reign and rule. And one of these commands was to observe the Sabbath. We see it first in Exodus 16 and then also in Exodus 35.2 in the giving of the Ten Commandments. It says this, Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. So this pattern of six days of work followed by a day of rest is a pattern uh, after God's own pattern, his own actions at the creation of the world. Uh, we read in Genesis 1, right? The six days God made the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. Therefore, God's chosen people were to follow this pattern. Work six days, and then on the last day of the week, Saturday, they were to rest from their labors and gather to worship the God who had saved them. And as we read... The punishment under the Mosaic law for not keeping the Sabbath was severe, right? It was death. Therefore, over Israel's long history, Jewish rabbis, understandably, spent considerable amount of time trying to discern what constituted work on the Sabbath. Instead of asking, hey, how close to the line can I get without sinning? They asked, hey, how many barriers can we put up to make sure we don't cross the line? To get an idea of what they thought constituted work, we can look at an early 2nd century Jewish text called the Mishnah. And in this text, it detailed 39 different categories of work that were not to be done on the Sabbath with hundreds of other subcategories underneath them. So, for example, you were only allowed to walk a certain distance from your home on the Sabbath. You were not allowed to cook or to carry items of a certain weight and many more. And all these regulations uh, made it nearly impossible to keep them all. And furthermore, for the Jews, the Sabbath wasn't just a day set aside from their labors into worship, 
but it was also central to their cultural and religious identity. Like circumcision that marked these people as a set-apart people, observance of the Sabbath set them apart from the people around them. Especially in Jesus' day, when Israel was under Roman occupation, the Jews saw many of their customs, even their language, slowly assimilate to the people around them. And so strict observance of the Sabbath was a way to hold on to their religious and cultural identity. Therefore, anyone who would threaten to disrupt their understanding of this day would be in their minds not only breaking God's law, but also threatening the core of their identity. So when Jesus and his hungry disciples walked through the grain field under the watching eye of the Pharisees, Jesus sees it as a perfect opportunity to take aim at their man-made religious regulations and teach them about the true nature of the law, the true nature of the Son of Man, and where true righteousness dwells. Now, to be clear, Jesus and his disciples are not stealing uh, as they pluck grain from this field. Uh, look at Deuteronomy 23, 25. It says, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So in other words, uh, it'd be one thing if you're walking by one of the many cornfields here in Indiana, and you decide, you know, I'm starving, I'm going to take just a just one head of corn. That's not, you know, he's, I'll be okay. But it'd be another thing if you fired up your own combine and took an acre of it and said, hey, I'm going to take this home for, for later. Two different things. Yet according to the Pharisees' interpretation of the law, Jesus and his disciples were in violation of the Sabbath, and not just on one count, but on several counts. In Phil Reichen's commentary, he says that according to the Mishnah, reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing food were all violation of their Sabbath laws. So therefore, when the disciples picked heads of grain, the Pharisees thought they were reaping. When they rubbed them in their hands to separate the wheat from the chaff, they considered this threshing and winnowing. And when they started to eat the grain, they were guilty of preparing food on the Sabbath. So with every mouthful the disciples were violating the law four times over. So what happens? The Sabbath enforcers, you know, they've been watching, and so they, they come out and say, hey, what are you doing? Eating on the Sabbath, doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And you can feel maybe the, the tension of this moment. You, know, you can imagine disciples picking, and then they're like, they're, you know, looking to Jesus, like, can we, can we keep eating? Like, is that, is that okay? And they're looking at Jesus, hey, how is he going to respond? But just when the Pharisees, right, they think they got Jesus backed into court, they think they've got him, he shows that he's the one who's truly in charge of the situation. It's like when I'm wrestling uh, with my four and five-year-old, and they, they think they've got me pinned down when we're wrestling at home. But they don't realize that I'm soon about to display the full force of my dad's strength and to show them who's really in charge. Instead of playing their games and engaging in the common Sabbath regulation disputes, Jesus goes right at the heart of their understanding of the Sabbath and of the law and ultimately their understanding of who he is. Jesus responds to their accusation just like he did to the devil's accusations in Luke 4 by pointing them to Scripture. And his response leaves the Pharisees dumbfounded. Look at verse 3 with me. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? 
how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. So Jesus is having them consider a story that we find in 1 Samuel 21, where David, who at the time is God's anointed king of Israel, and he is on the run from King Saul, who God has rejected and is now trying to kill David. So David and his men come to the tabernacle. They are very hungry, but the only food that is available is the bread that the law states is reserved only for the priests. So in this story, the priest Elimelech had to make a quick judgment between the pressing needs of David and his men or to keep the ceremonial regulations of the holy bread. So what would he do with this ethical dilemma? Well, the scriptures tell us that he judged that it was of great importance to the Lord that his anointed king be fed as he ran for his life and that it was perfectly in step with the heart of the law to use a symbol, a symbol to set aside to remind Israel their service to God, to serve the needs of the Lord's anointed and his men in this special circumstance. And we see that the scriptures never condemn Elimelech or David for this clear breach of the regulations of the holy bread. So you see what he's doing, he's referencing the story. Jesus is not so subtly saying to the Pharisees, hey, if you condemn my disciples for eating a portion of grain in their time of need, you must also condemn David, Israel's great king, in his time of need. Luke doesn't uh, record a response from the Pharisees, but they would undoubtedly be incensed that Jesus would have put himself and his disciples on the same plane as David, Israel's most prominent king. But even before the Pharisees could get a verbal you know, scoff at this identification with David, Jesus one-ups it. And not just identifying himself with David, but he puts himself in the place of God. Look at verse 5. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. To put this statement, maybe in our context, understand, uh, imagine with me, you're, you're coming into church on a Sunday morning, it's a, it's a great time where you're fellowshipping with, uh, with the saints, you know, the, the band is playing some of your, your favorite songs, the, the congregational prayer is mm, on point, uh, the scripture reader, man, didn't miss a word, great, everything's wonderful. Then I come to the pulpit, you know, maybe Tommy's out of town, I say, greetings, Castleton Community Church. Yes, my name is Eric Swanson, but you can call me Lord of Sundays. <laughs> so my guess is that you might wait a second and pause. Uh, I'm like, okay, it's, where's the punchline? Is that coming? Is it coming soon? And when it doesn't come, my hope is that you would be out of your seats and headed to that door right back there. Well, why, why should you run for the doors if you heard that? Well, to call yourself Lord over something that God has made, that being a day, you are putting yourself right in the place of God himself. So when Jesus calls himself Lord of the Sabbath, he communicates that he made the Sabbath and the Sabbath serves his purposes. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not telling the Pharisees not to observe the Sabbath. But what he's doing is he's showing them what true Sabbath keeping looks like. Jesus is claiming authority to interpret his own instructions. And if they recognized who he truly was, they would not be accusing, but they would be asking, Lord, how ought we to keep the Sabbath? 
The problem with the Pharisees was not that they took the law too seriously. And they just needed to maybe loosen up a bit, you know, unbutton a few buttons, you know, live a little. That was not their problem, and that was not their solution. But rather, their problem was twofold. That they failed to see that the law of God was designed to bless and to serve God's people and not to burden them. And two, and most importantly, they failed to see Jesus for who he truly was. The Lord of the Sabbath. The one who made the Sabbath. The one through whom the whole world came into existence and now is here. And he is ushering in the kingdom of God. Yet the Pharisees so focused on the laws that they have made in their own likeness, they missed the one to whom the whole law of God was pointing. Friends, do you recognize Jesus' authority in your own life? Do you come humbly to his word? Or are you quick to accuse and to excuse it? The law interpreted by the Pharisees, it kept people hungry and wanting. While the law of Christ, it feeds people and leaves them satisfied. May we too look to the Lord of the Sabbath and be fed. So in the story of Sabbath eating, we see Jesus declare his authority over the Sabbath. And now let's get to our second Sabbath story. And we'll see Jesus doesn't just tell of his authority. He puts it on display in a story of Sabbath healing. Look at verse 6 with me in 7. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. Like our first story, Luke tells us at the beginning that this confrontation with the Pharisees is going to be Sabbath-related. This time, we find Jesus in the synagogue, the place where the Jews gather to worship on the Sabbath. And as we have found him so often in Luke's gospel, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. So he has not abolished the Sabbath, but he is keeping it as God intended under the Mosaic Covenant. However, this story turns from a customary kind of Sabbath setting into an occasion for a confrontation and potential Sabbath breaking as Luke introduces the characters in attendance that day. First, we are told of a man in the congregation who has a withered hand. Don't know if this man was suffering from a paralysis of his hand or a muscular atrophy, but Dr. Luke tells us here that it is his right hand that was affected, so perhaps to help us understand the weight of the severity of his disability. You can think just how difficult it would be to find work in a labor-intensive society without the function of maybe your dominant hand. And then we are told also in attendance is a group of the religious elites, the scribes and the Pharisees, who are not here to hear a gifted traveling preacher or to be fed by the word of God, but to spy, right? Spy on Jesus, hoping to find this Sabbath breaker committing another offense against their code of righteousness, this time in a place of worship in front of many witnesses. Now, what Sabbath violation are they trying to get Jesus doing here? Well, working on the Sabbath, of course, but in their understanding of the law, healing on the Sabbath was not allowed if someone's life was not in imminent danger. It was understood that, hey, if, if your life's not in danger, guess what? You can wait till tomorrow. Just wait. Come back tomorrow, then you can be healed. The amazing thing about this whole story, right, is they don't doubt Jesus' ability to heal. Right? They're there waiting for him to do something miraculous. 
But they were more interested in finding ways to accuse him, to undermine his authority that threatened their own. They would rather rejoice in malfeasance than rejoice in mercy. And friends, unfortunately, I think we can find our hearts in a very similar place towards God and others. We look for ways maybe to accuse God of wrongdoing when our circumstances maybe don't work according to our liking. We maybe convince ourselves that if we can just find evidence that God is somehow malicious in his actions toward us, then we can give ourselves license not to listen to him and to his word, to undercut his authority. We can say in our hearts, you know, God, if you won't give me my heart's desire, hey, it's a good one, God. Well, then that means mm, you must not love me. Therefore, I'll look to the things that I know maybe are evil to get back at God. Instead of looking for the many mercies of God, we look for the ways that God, we can maybe discern that he is unloving towards us so that we can stand in judgment over God. And we do this to others as well, right? We, we seek to find ways to accuse others of wrongdoing in order to make ourselves feel better about our own failures. Instead of looking for evidence of God's grace in others, we'd rather maybe see evil or somebody who is less holy than we are so that we can make ourselves feel good. And that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing. They don't want to see mercy. They want to see sin. They don't want to see justice. They want to be justified. They don't want to see loving kindness. They want to see law-breaking, law-breaking for their own benefit. Because in their minds, if they thought, hey, if Jesus broke the law, then, then he couldn't be from God. So, because what man, you know, could be from God if he were a lawbreaker. What they failed to realize is that his ability to heal on the Sabbath was showing true law fulfillment. Look at verses 8 and 10 through 10 and see Jesus once again shows his authority and his control over his opponents. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? Luke makes it clear that Jesus is clearly not oblivious to what the scribes and Pharisees are looking to accuse him of, and he takes their scheme head on. He doesn't look to heal the man in secret, maybe to appease them, but Jesus calls the man to stand in front of all who were there. And this man, uh, who we don't know much about and is kind of, kind of a, an afterthought even in this whole scene, I mean, he recognizes who has authority in the room, right? No amount of, I don't know what kind of social pressure he may have been feeling in that, in that moment. He may have known, hey, you can't heal on the Sabbath and I've been have this hand for a long time. But no amount of despair or fear was going to keep this man from sitting. Because when Jesus calls your name, guess what? You get up. And as this man stands with Jesus, Jesus turns and asks the congregation, but probably more specifically, right to his opponents. He asks, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And it's in this question, Jesus does not engage again in the debate about what constitutes work on the Sabbath, but what does he do? He exposes the hypocritical nature of the laws that they had fashioned for themselves. For in their zealousness to obey the law, they began prohibiting good 
and promoting harm. They destroy lives instead of saving them. And in essence, they miss the true purpose of the Sabbath. Jesus' question does not offer a middle ground. You are either with Jesus or you are against him. You either submit to your own law or you will submit to his. Can you just feel and imagine like the tension of, of that moment? I don't know how many people were there, but all eyes, boom, right? Fixed on Jesus and the man, waiting to see what would happen. And Jesus seemingly, he kind of pauses maybe a little bit. Some uncomfortable silence, looks around at everybody, waiting for a response. And when no one says anything, he says to the man in verse 10, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and the hand is restored. In response to Jesus' miracle, we see the scribes and Pharisees not filled with joy for the man who was healed, but they are filled with what? Fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. There's a lot of irony in this moment. Uh, One commentator pointed out that the Pharisees were so incensed that Jesus would heal on the Sabbath, violating their understanding of work, yet Jesus does not even lift a finger to heal but merely spoke, and it was so. The juxtaposition, right, is is clear. Jesus saves a life on the Sabbath while the Pharisees conspire to take a life. Pharisees wanted to keep Jesus from working. Jesus, without lifting a finger, heals a man so that he could work. Instead of marveling at the miraculous mercy of God, they conspired against their creator. The law of the Pharisees kept people hungry and broken, while the law of Christ, it feeds the hungry and heals the broken. The choice seems obvious, but it is more difficult to live out, is it not, this belief in Christ? So in this story, we have a story of Sabbath eating and a story of Sabbath healing, but what in the world do these Sabbath stories mean for us today? What does it mean to maybe even obey the Sabbath uh, as 21st century Gentile Christians? Well, three points to help us understand the story of true Sabbath resting. First, point of application, it's, it's important that we understand that true Sabbath rest is found in the finished work of Jesus and not our law keeping. True Sabbath rest is found in the finished work of Jesus and not our law-keeping. The Pharisees sought to justify themselves and build their righteousness on how well they kept the law. But when they are confronted with the mercy and the authority of Jesus, the only perfect law-keeper, their whole system of righteousness comes crashing down. And it's, it's really easy for us to, to bury the Pharisees in our scorn But friends, we must recognize that we are more like the Pharisees than we are like Jesus. Their failed system of righteousness, uh, it makes its way into our hearts all the time. Especially to those of us who have grown up around the Bible, grown up around God's word and religious ritual. We may not say it out loud, but functionally many of us believe that if we just go to church more Sundays than not... If we just give a portion of our money to the needy or to the church, if we don't use foul language, 
when other people are around, if we you know, don't have sex outside of marriage, then the Lord will be pleased with me. And he's obligated to bless us. We take the good commands of God's law and instead of obeying them to glorify God for, and for our good, we use them as a means of our justification and acceptance. Yet friends, this is not the gospel. Galatians 2.16 says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, no amount of good works you stack up, no amount of sins you avoid, no amount of praise you accumulate from people who think you're, you're great will earn you one ounce of favor with God. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is a gift from God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, it is only through the work of Jesus Christ, the only perfect law keeper, that we are saved. When we come to understand that truly there is nothing in our hands we bring, that it's simply to the cross we cling, it's then that we truly can find rest for our souls. Brothers and sisters, maybe you're here and you are trying to justify yourself by the law. And if you are, I bet you're right, it's exhausting. Because you are never able to satisfy its demands. Whether of the law of God or the law of this world. But today, friend, you can rest in the finished work of Christ. For Jesus has fulfilled God's law for you on the cross. Maybe you're here today and, and you've never received this gospel of grace. And if you're still trying to maybe even earn your way to God and please everyone around you, I would call you today, maybe for the first time, to come to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You need to know that no amount of good works will be able to erase your sins. God is not asking you to do enough good so that you outweigh the bad. But when you come to Christ, he says, when you lay your, your sins at the foot of the cross, he says, friend, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. Not because of your work, but because of my work on your behalf. And friends, if this is you, if you have never done this, I, I would, would call you, even now, in the quietness of your own heart, to give yourself to this Jesus. And if you need, want to know more about what that looks like, ask the friend who brought you or come up, and I would love to be able to talk with you after the service and to share this freedom that we have in Christ. Again, to my brothers and sisters who are here and truly believe that our good works are not the foundation of our salvation, but rather the fruit of our salvation, a warning to us is that we must be careful not to hold one another to standards that God himself has not asked of them in his word. If we are to have a true gospel culture here at Castleton Community Church, then we must examine whether our words or actions communicate, maybe unintentionally, a different gospel than the one that we believe.
And to be clear, we should, we should not be ashamed to call others to holy living. That is, we don't want to take away anything from Scripture. But we should examine whether there may be hoops that we may ask people to jump through that God has not required of them. Do we require one another to share the same opinion on the news of the day? Or share maybe the same passion for certain ministries? Do we look down on those who maybe make different school choices for their kids? Or do we judge someone standing with God by how their kids behave? Please don't do this for me, please. (laughs) Do we avoid certain people at church who are not like us or don't share our interests? Friends, when we do this, I know sometimes it's subtle, it's not, maybe you don't mean to, but when we do this, friends, this is not true gospel living. It's one thing to preach it, and it's another thing to have you live it as well in our church. So therefore, with hearts set on Christ, let us ask God to help us to be people who do not add burdens to one another, but are those who are ready and eager to carry burdens. For we know that Christ has carried our biggest burden on himself on the tree. True Sabbath rest is found in the finished work of Jesus and not our law-keeping. Second point of application. Sabbath rest is still a blessing for God's people. Sabbath rest is still a blessing for God's people. Now, the big question I know many of you maybe have been wanting me to answer uh, is what does it look like to um, walk faithfully in God's Sabbath rest today, maybe this side of the cross? Um, It's not the main question of this text uh, that it's begging us to answer, but it's an important question. Um, And so, but before I... wade into those difficult waters, uh, it's important to affirm that there are many faithful believers who hold different positions, even in our church, uh, on how the Christian ought to observe the Sabbath. And our statement of faith that we ask all our members to affirm, it it does not um, ask them to hold uh, a a particular view of the Sabbath, and that's for good reason, because there are many different ways in which we can interpret this and live out faithfully. And unfortunately, I don't have the time to unpack each one of these positions uh, this morning, but uh, I will assure you that in the e-news this week, I'll provide some resources that you can read up and do some further study on all the different positions that you can, uh, that rightly observe um, the Sabbath. But one thing I want to make sure we remember, regardless of what Sabbath position we may take, uh, remember that we are not justified by our Sabbath keeping. Amen? Okay. So what does Sabbath keeping and Sabbath rest mean for Christians today? Well, first, it's essential that we understand that because Jesus fulfilled the whole Mosaic law, we are no longer under the Mosaic covenant as the Jews in Jesus' day were, but we are under a new covenant, the new covenant made through Christ's blood. Therefore, we are not bound by the ceremonial legalities or the judicial penalties articulated in the old covenant. Jesus was a final, perfect sacrifice. We do not need to add more sacrifices to that. It was done. It was completed. Therefore, our obedience to the fourth commandment begins with resting in the person and work of Jesus every day of the week and not a particular day of the week. We will not find true rest um, for our souls in hobbies or you know, binging on certain TV shows or even going to the gym, we will find true spiritual rest every day when we come to Jesus 
when we remind ourselves of his gospel of grace and his words, even now that tell us, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. You want rest for your souls, you look to Jesus and you will find it. Finding our spiritual rest in Christ is of primary importance, but Jesus' fulfillment of the Sabbath doesn't abolish our need to rest from our labors. God's pattern of creation of six days of work, one day of rest, should still instruct us today that we are not designed to work 24-7. We were made in the image of God, and so we ought not to think that we can or should outwork our Creator. One author uh, says this, our unwillingness to cease from our labors is a confession of unbelief and admission that we view ourselves as creator and sustainer of our own universes. I think she's right. Therefore, when we take a day off from our regular jobs, we are displaying that we are trusting God to provide for us. And believe me, this is hard to do. There is always more work to be done. When we get to the weekend, it's not like, ah, it's all done. Everything's done. And then we, nope, there's always more work to be done. And I have to preach this to myself. My days off are Mondays, and I have to keep myself from, from checking email, checking work email, and saying, like, nope, guess what? Yes, the people, they may say they need me, but you know what? They need God, and God can take care of those things which is very hard. Um, but this rest is a rhythm God has given to his people to remind ourselves that we cannot, in our own strength, continue to work uh, as much as we do, that we cannot depend on ourselves but on him. Just as an aside, I know some people, uh, maybe in this room, are stay-at-home moms, working moms at from home. Um, it is a good thing. So this, this word is for the dads, um, right? The kids don't just go away um, uh, at one day of the week. Uh, they're still, still around. We love them. They're still around. It is right and good for you to help your wife find rest um, by taking the kids, letting her go, be with her friends, find that time. Um, if we don't do that, we, again, we harm, our, harm our wives and rob them of the rest that God has for them as well. So in addition to rest from our labors, Jesus' fulfillment of the Sabbath also does not abolish our need to gather for worship. Look at Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. It says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, I fear that many of us, maybe even in this room, see corporate worship as a good thing to do if the weather is nice, but not too nice. Or if we aren't too tired from the events of Saturday night, or if it fits with our Little League schedule or a Colts away game. The gathering of God's people ought to be the high point of your week. Not because you expect to have some amazing experience or have the most fun or be the most relaxed, but because you believe that in hearing God's word preached, 
sung and prayed over you that the Lord is feeding your soul. And he is mending broken thinking by his spirit. There are countless meals that I do not remember. Um, don't remember what I ate. I do remember what I ate last night. It was very yummy. Um, but there are a lot of things you don't remember. There will be a lot of sermons you will never remember each week. But each time you come, you get fed, Lord willing, by the Spirit. You may not recognize it day after day, but over time, you will find yourself either nourished or malnourished, depending on how you submit to God's word and the regular rhythms that God has instituted for his people. And just remember, our passage showed us here that the day of worship does not mean, hey, this is the time for me just to, just to soak in. It is that, but it's also more than that. It's going to give glory to the Lord, but also it gives us an opportunity to show mercy to one another and to carry the, the burdens of the broken around us. And I can't tell you, friends, how many times the Lord has used the singing of his saints on the Lord's day to remind me that I am not alone in this fight of faith. How many times he has given me strength to look over and see, you know, the Daguses first service singing their hearts out. It's like that we are together in this. That we are on the same journey of faith and it is helping me to run the race to set before us. And friends, not only do you need the regular gathering of the saints, but your church family needs you to be at the regular gathering of the saints. It's in the gathering of God's people that we remember together that we are, friends, one day closer to heaven. Which brings us to our last point. Set your hope, friends, on the eternal Sabbath that is to come. Set your hope on the eternal Sabbath that is to come. When we experience the Sabbath rest God provides for us in Christ, especially on the day when we gather, it is just a little taste of the Sabbath rest that is to come. When Christ in all of heaven will come down and he will set up his forever rest here on earth. Friends, one day we will eternally rest from our labors. One day when we are glorified with Christ, we will be able to rest from our battle with sin. And one day we will fully and completely be at rest with our Savior Jesus when we see him face to face. Friends, all Sabbath stories are meant to point to this coming day. Because we have this hope of this rest to come, we can give ourselves to others. And we can look for opportunities to show mercy and grace. And because we have this hope, we don't need to labor for the things that perish, but for the things that last for eternity. Our hope, both in life and in death, is Christ alone and the eternal Sabbath he will bring. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for providing rest for our souls in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Thank you that we are not justified by our law keeping, but in the law keeping of Christ, who credits it to our account by grace through faith. Lord, help us now to live in light of this great gospel that you have bestowed upon us, that we would be a people that live in light of it each day. And Lord, would we not just find rest in you today, but in every day, as we look to you and preach this gospel of grace to ourselves, to our own hearts, and to those around us. 
If there's anyone in here who has not found true rest for their souls, would they find it today? Would they find the joy of canceled sin and the freedom that comes from being one of your sons and daughters? It's in Christ alone our hope is found, our only hope in life and in death. Amen.